learn, fun, interactive, and quick, uh, so you'd actually get a foundational understanding um, if you can't get to Israel. Obviously, it does the best, but it did not. This is probably the next. So thank you so much for coming. I'm so excuse me for the delay in this time starting. It was due to difficulties, but it's really important. You really appreciate that we have this up and running. And um, I'm just going to remove this front line because if you guys want to start, you're going to leave early. Good evening, here we are. Was anybody here for the last presentation I did? Well, I don't remember you. Okay. It was great. Okay. Okay, so I'm Rabbi What a great pleasure to be here. Tell you a little story just to get the uh, things going, then we'll move along. It's a cute little story about a, a family where they had two sons, David and Samuel, seven and nine, and they were always you know, into trouble. Real mission makers. So parents were happy and very little time. They could not figure out a way to discipline them. So they uh, decide to ask you to the local rabbi. So uh, they go to the local rabbi and they say, Rabbi, our son, David Samuel, is always in trouble. We don't know what to do. We're at our wit's end. He says, not the problem. Send, you know, the uh, younger one in. So they send, um, they go home, they bring David to the rabbi's study. And David is um, seven years old. And the rabbi says, come on in, David, and sits him across from his table. And uh, David is sitting, of course, very nervous, very uneasy, and the rabbi's looking at David, and the David's looking at rabbi, and the rabbi's looking at David, and David's just very, very uh, uncomfortable. Anyway, eventually the rabbi says to David, David, there is God. So David's going to say, how do you answer this question? So he just sits there, just looks, looks around the room, kind of pointing the rabbi's glance, and says, again, the rabbi says, look, David, there is God. David still has no idea what to answer the rabbi. More time passes, getting really, really uncomfortable. Eventually, the rabbi leans over on the uh, desk and he says to David, and I'm a little loud voice, David, there is God. Anyway, David just gets so frightened, runs out of the rabbi's study, runs all the way home, gets his brother Samuel, they run up to the room, they go into the closet with that little fort, and he says, Samuel, Samuel, we're in trouble, we're in trouble. And Samuel goes, What's wrong, David? What's wrong? He goes, God's missing, and he thinks, We took him. Anyway. Always like to say that we know we can't take God. We know we can't take God. But there are times when people might think that he's missing. You know, life is complicated. We're sort of all alone here in this universe. We live our own lives. We have our own decisions. We have challenges. And, you know, life is kind of challenging to navigate. It would be very wonderful if God would just wholly apparent to us. But that's not the way he constructed reality from our understanding. So we do believe, though, as Jews, that he did make himself very well understood. And that's by the books he gave us starting with our Torah and our tradition, he revealed himself in a way that we, the Jewish people, have been mining the knowledge and the wisdom ever since, you know, 3,300 years ago when we started as a nation. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the nature of Jewish tradition. We're going to understand what is, how is it that our tradition works, how is it that we discover, why is it so we're so into learning and studying and, and trying to just get straight in all the different books, the Torah, the Mishnah, the prophets, the writings, like how does this whole tradition work in the first place? So that's going to be our goal. By the end, you're going to have in your mind a very clear understanding of who's God uh, in a very systematic way. And the goal is really to have a framework so that you feel more comfortable, that you know where to turn, where you can look for ideas, understand yourself. All right, without further ado, the clicker's not breaking, so I'll keep it right I'm just going to have to do a little manual here. Ta-da. The first thing we have to do is to understand the way 
we understand God through the books, is understanding who we are as a people. What is the nature of Jewish identity? So I'm going to ask, you know, is our identity religious? Is it racial? Are Jews, is it a cultural issue? What is it that binds us as people? Is it group? That's not a very good question. I wish it was. But uh, is it ethical? What is the thing that kind of makes us one as a group? So I believe actually it's none of the above. What binds us as a group is that it's a national identity. We Jews are a nation. And that is the foundation upon which everything else rests. Yes, we have ethics. Yes, we have a culture. Yes, we have a religious understanding. We have an understanding of the metaphysics. But the foundation of who we are as a group is a nation. And I'll just show you, it's very easy to see this. Because if you look, just in our, in our tradition, when God gave Abraham, he didn't say, God, you know, Abraham, leave everything behind and go build a religious group. Instead, he said, no, I want you to go to a land, and then I'm going to make you a great nation. Like, yeah, he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. When he spoke to Pharaoh, to Moses, he said, Pharaoh, Moses, go down to Egypt, tell Pharaoh, let my nation out, let my people go. We're a nation, not a religious group. Right? The land flowing with milk and honey. He told God, uh, God told Moses about Zion, go be a treasured nation. So amongst all the nations, we are a nation. Isaiah, famous line, we're all light unto nations. Our goal as a people is to model a certain way of living as a nation, and that will be a light. And we say every time, you had a bar of bar mitzvah, and we get called up to the Torah, blessed are you, God, Lord of the earth, who chose us from all the nations and gave us a Torah. So what binds us together is that we're a nation. And it's very important to understand this, because we look at what our tradition is all about, we have to have the right context. Like, is it, is it a religious tradition? Is it an ethical tradition? I believe it's a national tradition. And that's how we're going to frame everything tonight. And it's interesting to note, just to kind of bring home the point, there are 26 countries in the world that have Islam as their official religion. And there are 18 nations that have Christianity as their official religion. Because those are religions. The definition of religion is a belief or doctrine in a supreme being and a way of worshiping that being. So those are religions. That's Christianity and Islam. So you can have lots of different peoples in the world ascribing to that belief system. But not us. There's only one Jewish nation. There is. It's just Israel. One people, one land. So just like I'm Canadian. One Canada, there's one United States, one France, one Germany, one South Africa, there's one Israel. That's it, because by nature we are contained to a certain land. And therefore, if you understand what our tradition is all about, it explains why our Torah, our tradition, has national laws. Like we have a social welfare, welfare system, we have a judicial system, a court system, we have zoning laws, labor laws, banking system. Like why would our tradition, the Torah, have all these things if not the layout? What we like as a people, how we're supposed to function as a nation. And that's why Jews outside of Israel are called diaspora Jews. The word diaspora in the dictionary actually just says it's the group of Jews living outside of Israel. That's what it means. So Jews are either defined by living in the land or living outside the land, but really kind of binds together as a national identity. Does that make sense? And that's why I've got something to mention. That's why conversion. You know, it's interesting. And why is it that when it comes to conversion, Every other religion is so zealous in trying to get as many adherents, you know, lop off the heads that people don't believe. We want everybody to believe. And Jews are not. Like, why aren't we kind of running around the world as well? We could, there's so few of us. We could use a few more of us, you know, especially at these times. The reason is, you know, an easy way to look at it is that to us, conversion is more like immigration. 
you know, it's like you're immigrating into a nation, not joining, joining a religious group. So when you come into a nation, the immigration laws are typically very, very tough because you want to make sure the person coming in is going to adhere to the, the laws of the land and they're going to be a, you know, a full-functioning member and committed member of society. So that's why Judaism has never been so pro just getting adherence because it's not about religious beliefs. It's about joining a group of people that are going to build something, a nation that's going to be all by into nations. Does that make sense? Clear so far? Okay, good. All right. Oops. Therefore, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the one minute map of Jewish history. Now, I have a crash course in Jewish history maybe one day. We're going to go through the big uh, all of Jewish history. But the one minute map will kind of help just organize things. And then I'm going to show you where we're going to focus tonight on that. Okay? If we could get a one-minute map of Jewish history in a minute, would you be interested? Say yes. Yes, of course. So here we go. It's like this. Jewish history can be understood in four phases. Phase one, two, three, and four. Right? Phase one is what I call the development of Jewish civilization. It's a 4300 period of history. It starts with creation. Uh, creation of the world, there's mankind, eventually Abraham's going to emerge. We're going to get this clear shortly, so not to worry about kind of the, uh, the timeline yet. But all together, we kind of grow into a page. We have patriarchs and matriarchs, Abraham and Sarah. Then we grow into a uh, small group of people, 70, go to the land of Egypt. There we grow into a nation in the land of Egypt. We eventually come out, we're going to be in the land of Israel for a certain amount of time. We'll get this clear. And then we get exiled once by the Babylonians. And then we come into the land of Israel again for another chunk of time. And then we get exiled a second time by the Romans. But by the end of this 4,300-year period of history, history, we've expressed ourselves as a civilization. We, the Jewish people, in our land, with our legal system, with our whole culture, our way of life is being expressed during phase number one. So phase one is Jewish civilization. Phase two is what I call the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages is represented by these two arrows. Because during the Middle Ages, and by the way, it's not familiar. Oh, it's a thousand year period of history. It's a thousand year period of history. And these two arrows here represent two types of pressure operating against the Jewish people. There's going to be religious persecution, because during the Middle Ages, that's when Christianity and Islam really emerged as, uh, as religions, both claiming to be the true representatives of God on earth. And therefore, there's going to be religious persecution. And then there's going to be economic hardship, and that's the feudal system. Right? What's going to be during it, once Rome collapses, the world is more or less chaotic in Europe. You have the feudal system where you have these large landowners protecting the small landowners from the barbarians. But the only way to get protection was by swearing in the name of JC uh, to the oath, the fealty, which we wouldn't do. So we got pushed off our land. And as a result, we're going to have two types of pressure. Religious persecution from the monotheistic, new monotheistic religions, Christianity and Islam, and then we have economic hardship from religious. It's a thousand-year period of history, a thousand-year period, which is a happy chunk of time. Then we get to phase three, which is the Enlightenment. Now, the Enlightenment is represented by the arrows going in the opposite direction. Because what happens during the Enlightenment, due to the French Revolution um, and the um, Protestant Reformation, there's changes in Europe. And for the first time, there's a notion when the Protestant Reformation happens that there's got to be a, a way for people with religious differences, Protestants versus Catholics, there's got to be a way for them to get together. So the notion of tolerance is born during the Enlightenment. And we also have the French Revolution, where we kind of break down classes, and there's no more, everybody got freedom of religion, 
So there's a new age of tolerance. And the reason why the arrows go in the opposite direction is that, oh, here, thousand years, over here, okay, that was there. Um, the reason why the arrows go in the opposite direction is because now the threat to the Jewish people is the inverse. Now with the gates open, we can sort of like assimilate and become like the other nations that we're living in. Maybe we'll just assimilate away and we'll no longer be a separate national entity. We'll just join the other nations and, and convert ourselves or just assimilate culturally. So that's the Enlightenment, which is about a 400-year period of history. And then finally, we have the return to Israel, which is, you know, up until the present, which is basically the Enlightenment. We realize that all the Enlightenment, where did it lead to? It eventually led to the Holocaust. And that the Jews were separated racially. We would never be, be accepted in any land. And uh, we realize that there's only one place for us to be truly secure, hopefully, which is in the land of Israel. And therefore, there's been a, a pushback. And we're still sort of in this phase figuring out where exactly are we completely, what's our relationship amongst the other nations of the world. But those are the four phases. So once again, phase one, Jewish civilization, 4,300-year period of history, which we're going to get clear on tonight. Where we express ourselves as a people in our own land. Eventually get exiled once, and the second time, we enter the Middle Ages, a thousand year period of history. Pressure coming in, which is the, I always feel like a weatherman at this point. Pressure coming in, we have the religious persecution, economic hardships, then we enter the Enlightenment. Now the pressure's off, and we might just assimilate away and disappear, and phase four is the return to Israel. Is that clear? So let's just do a little review. Okay, good. So Jewish history is divided into four different phases. Phase one is the development of Jewish. Good. How long was that period of time? 49 years of time. Good. Then we get exile. That's the end of the Roman exile. Beginning of the Roman exile, we enter phase two, which is the Middle Ages. How long was the Middle Ages? Right? Pressure coming in, religious hardship, economic hardship as well, persecution. And then we enter phase three, which is the Enlightenment. Now the pressure is off. We might just assimilate away. And then phase four is the return to Good. Phase two was the. Phase four was. Phase one was. And phase three was. Right, right. There you go. Okay, that's the map. So now what we're going to do is we're going to put our tradition together by focusing on phase number one. Here we go. Now phase one is really where the dynamics, the whole structure of how our tradition works. It really happens during this period of our history, and the reason why it happens here. That's because if you think about it, if we're about to get after this phase, going to exile, and we're going to be scattered to the four corners of the world, it better be that our tradition is set up in a way that works. So when we go through this long exile, which is a very, you know, after a chunk of time, the Jewish people can more or less stay together in terms of the way that we live and the way we operate. If our tradition developed afterwards, once we got to the Middle Ages and we got scattered to the four corners of the world, then there would be no consistency amongst you. Jews would have morphed into who knows how many different types of groups. So our tradition gets formulated here and consolidated during this phase of time. It's a 4,300-year period of history. And what we're going to do is we're going to organize all 4,300 years right now, and then we'll just put together the pieces step by step. Okay? Here it goes. All you have to do, remember 4,300 years of history, remember these numbers. 1,000, 1,500, 1,000. 1,000, 1,500, 1,000. 1,000, 1,500, 1,000. If you remember those numbers, then you have 3,500 years like this. So what are the numbers? 1,000, 1,500. Very good. What are the numbers? 
Okay, good. So how does it work? One thousand, one thousand, five hundred, one thousand. It was a thousand years from Adam to Noah. A thousand year period from Adam to Noah. Noah eventually you know, enters the ark. He has to go and see the second civilization of men. Men become very corrupt during those first thousand years. He comes out and he emerges in 70 different nations. We're called the sons of Noah, 70 nations. Then it's a thousand years from Noah to Abraham. Thousand year period from Noah to Abraham. So it was actually 10 generations from Adam to Noah and then 10 generations from Noah to Abraham. Then it was 500 years after the birth of Abraham to the giving of the Torah. And here the numbers are exact. You know, you know what year in the Jewish calendar Abraham was born in? 1492, you say? So it's 1948. It's a famous number. 1948, in the Jewish calendar, that's when Abraham was born. And the Torah was given in 2448 in the Jewish calendar. So exactly 500 years after Abraham, the founding father of the Jewish people, emerges, we have the giving of the Torah about Sinai. Then, a thousand years after the giving of the Torah, we have the prophets and the writings. The prophets and the writings are going to form what's known as Nah, the Navi and the Tsuri, the prophets and the writings, which is our holy scripture, Tanakh. Tanakh is an acronym, T for Torah, N for Nah, which is prophets, and Ch for Tsuri, which is writings. A thousand years after the Torah was given, we have the putting together of these two books, the prophets and writings. And we're going to go through, we're going to go through this shortly, but it's a thousand year period. And I explain why each thing developed when it did. But I want to get the structure clear because then you'll walk away and have all the pieces kind of organized in your mind. So once again, just review. It was a thousand years after Adam. A thousand years to Noah to Abraham. Five hundred years after Abraham, we get the Torah. And then a thousand years after that, we get the prophets and the writings. So let's do that together. One thousand, one thousand, five hundred, one thousand. Thousand years to Adam, two. Thousand years to Noah, two. Five hundred years later, we get the. And a thousand years after that, we get the. Prophets and writings. Excellent. And then, just to get to 4300, we need 800 more years. It works like this. Oops. Okay. Separate there. 500, 300. You remember 500, 300? That's another 800 years right there. 500 years after the prophets and the writings, we get the Mishnah. The Mishnah. Now, we're going to go through this. I explained, but the Mishnah more or less is the oral tradition. It's the our oral tradition, how we understand what's in the Torah was eventually written down in a form which I explained called the Mishnah, which is the basis of Jewish study. And then 300 years after the Mishnah, we get the Talmud. We get the Talmud. It's interesting, the Talmud was finished in 475 of the Common Era. Rome, the empire, collapsed in 476 of the Common Era. So just as Rome collapses, and it's chaos in the end of the Middle Ages, which is be, you know, terrible. The Jewish people have this Talmud. I'll explain what the significance of the Talmud is. But these two books, the Mishnah and the Talmud, they're going to give us a way of holding on to our oral tradition. So 500 years after the Prophets and the Writings, we get the Mishnah, and 300 years after the Mishnah, we get the Talmud. So let's do a little review. 1,000, 1,500, 1,000. 1,000 years from Adam to Thousand years old too. Five hundred years later, we get the. Thousand years after, before we get the. And then five hundred, three hundred. Five hundred years after the Prophet's wedding, we get the. And three hundred years later, we get the. Oh, good, good, great. All right. So now we're going to go ahead and explain what happens here. Now I'm just going to. Do it.
Okay. So when I met last time, we went through a crash course in the entire tour. We organized the entire tour, all 54 parts in a way that was easy to review, remember, and kind of get the map of it. When we get together next week, we're going to go through the tour and kind of map it out again, but on a kind of deeper level to see some themes and see what's really happening. So we're going to do that. We're kind of going to go through the tour together in the next two weeks, and we'll cover all five books of the tour. But at Mount Sinai, we get the tour. Now, I just want to um, explain just the significance here before we get to the, the next section. I actually call it the Billion Dollar Challenge. The Billion Dollar Challenge works like this. Imagine if I said to you, I'll give you a billion dollars, and I want you to make the most incredible university in the world. Your job is you can build a world-class, world's best university. You give you a billion dollars, you can build any building, you can have all the technology, hire world-class scholars and teachers, get the resources you need, have your medical, medical best law school, school of philosophy, school of psychology, you know, uh, and you know what? On that campus, I want you to have a uh, nursery for the, you know, the faculty's kids, and have a middle, you know, elementary school, and put a middle school there, and a high school there, you know, just go, fully on, on the uh, building of this university. And I'm gonna give you a billion dollars to do it, but there's only one condition. And the condition is that you can only use one book. You can only use one book for every course. It's gotta be the same book for the School of Law, same book for the School of Philosophy, same book that's gonna be used for the nursery school, elementary school, high school, it's got to be the same book, and you've got to use that book every year. You can't change the book, right? If that's condition, I'll give you the billion dollars if you can choose that book. Can you think of how, how's it possible? Every, you know, and that book, by the way, should not be more than 300 pages. It can't be more than 300 pages. It can't be like, you know, an encyclopedia, you know, for infinity. How do you just such a thing? Isn't that crazy? But guess what? There is such a book, and that book is the Torah. That is the Torah. The Torah is a billion dollar enterprise. Because think about it. Here we have this one book that kind of was brought down, introduced at Mount Sinai, became the covenant, the, 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 the covenant of the Jewish people. In fact, that's how the Torah refers to itself, it's the book of the covenant. It's the book that shows us how we're gonna to relate to God and how God's gonna to relate to us. And it's got everything in it, our legal system, our philosophy, our religious ideals, our ethics, our social awareness, it's got everything in there. It's 300 pages long, and that's what the Jewish people studied for a thousand years. It was the only book we had in our tradition. So we didn't have a library. It was just a Torah school. That was it, that was our entire tradition. But we also got it on Sinai, an oral tradition. We got an oral tradition explaining that because you know, the way I kind of divvy up the written Torah, the five books of Moses, versus this oral tradition is, the five books of Moses lists the commandments. There's 650 commandments. In the Torah, you'll find 613 listed there. But it doesn't give you really the explanation on how to do that. So the oral tradition is the explanation on how to do it. For example, it says, keep the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Well, what does it mean, keep a Sabbath day? How do you keep a day holy? What does that mean? Don't do any work. What kind of work does it find? It doesn't tell you anywhere in the Torah. Our oral Torah, which is what our saying is God gave over to Moses, that was also given about Sinai, but it was given over orally. 
was given over orally to Moses, which he had to teach over to the generation that was in the desert time and got passed down for over a thousand years. You know, parent to child, you know, ready to student, that's the way it worked. Now, what, what would be the purpose of giving over an oral tradition? Like, why not just write things down? Why give over anything orally, especially if you remember all this material? What might be some advantages to setting it up this way that our tradition works that you have this kind of written body of knowledge, which is the Torah, and then you have this oral knowledge, which has to be only shared orally. You can't, you're not supposed to even write it down in Jewish law. You think it's, yeah, your name is? Sarah. Sarah, yeah. Keep the student-teacher relationship going to have a necessity for the teacher to tell you how to teach generations. Okay, good, right? So part, part of it is you have to keep that dynamic going. There's something very alive when you learn from a teacher. There's a dynamic the teacher can ensure the student has the knowledge. Student has a question they can ask the teacher. That doesn't happen when you're sitting with them inside the video. Good. What's another advantage to having an oral tradition? Yes. What's your name? Um, oh, yeah. Like ensure there's going to be discussion between people. It's not just like a book that people can read by themselves and like be alone and have it sort of have to discuss it out loud. Right. Okay, very good. But it actually has to be, there's an engagement. You know, everybody's engaged in the study, and there's a lot of clarification, so there's a lot of banter back and forth. So it comes from like the cultural blood of the Jewish people, is the study. Yes, sir? You're limiting it to the audience that's accepting it, so you don't have anyone coming in and just reading a book and saying, okay, I'm aware and I know, and I'm faithful to it. But actually, that's a very good point, too. The, the part of the way our tradition was set up was the later books, which I mentioned, Tradition of Talmud, they're only going to be written down after the advent of Christianity. Like once other religions begin that don't have access to our own tradition, then we're going to put that written form. But you're right, part of it was to keep it exclusive. That's only something we have access to. It's not something we just share. In fact, just before I take your point, there was a ter terrible tragedy um, during the Greek times when they translated. They wanted the Torah translated into Greek before it was only in Hebrew. And they, there's a whole story about how they had to translate it and to ensure the Jews were actually translating it properly, they set up 70 different sages in 70 different rooms to make sure that they were translated and they then compared the translation to make sure they weren't trying to trick uh, the Greeks. But when the, the Torah eventually got translated to Greek, that's when the problem began because now the pagans had access to it and they paganized the Torah. Yes? Um, Your so name is? Raquel. Raquel. I think the other important part of not having it written down is that for ourselves, Right, it's actually a very important point. This is the major distinction between our legal system and the Western legal system. Is that in, in Judaism, the goal is that all the citizens should be masters of the law. Because if you want to have a moral a, abiding society, if you're going to be a light to nation, you're going to require your citizens to sort of have a higher standard than what's out there, then you want the citizens to all be involved in the law. You don't want to have the laws as don't do this or do this, and citizens feeling disengaged. For us, the legal system is only something they deal with if you, you know, you get a parking ticket or something else happens, and you have to go to court, then you deal with the laws. But we're more or less estranged from laws because we're not a people of law in this country. But the Jewish people, the goal is for all of us to be engaged in understanding the laws because if we understand it and it makes sense to us and it ticks with, with us, then we're going to be committed to upholding it. So it changes the whole nature of the Jewish people. 
That makes sense? So there are tremendous advantages. And there's one other thing I want to point out is there's no way to write any book without an oral tradition, without an oral explanation. Because the moment you put anything down in writing, there's, things aren't clear. If I said, you know, Tuesday, 7.15, JEC, which Tuesday, JEC, what does that stand for? AM, PM, like, the moment you put anything down, what really ends up being the quality of one's education is someone who's, who's explaining to you. Like, you know, you can take, you know, Harvard Business School, and you can take, you know, Business School of, you know, uh, Iowa, and you could use the exact same page, uh, textbook. But the, the quality of education is who's getting over the understanding. So it's, it's the, it's by nature, things have to be explained. Does that make sense? So that's the way our tradition was structured. There was the Torah at Sinai, and then we got the oral tradition, which is also at Sinai, and it was given from Moses over, passed down generation to the next, one to the next, and maintained. Now, what happens? We're now gonna focus on this thousand year period where we get the prophets and writings, and this is the way it works. Okay, we're 40 years in the desert. Once we get the Torah at Sinai, because of events that happened, and the sin of spies, we ended up having to travel through the desert for 40 years. Then we finally come into the land of Israel for 850 years. We cross over the Jordan, we enter Israel, we're there for 850 years. Simple way to break down those years, 440 of those years we did not have the Temple of Jerusalem. It was just, you know, 12 tribes settled throughout the land, different cities. And then 410 years we had the first Temple of Jerusalem. That was built by King Solomon of Nazareth for 410 years. Grand total of 800 years. Then unfortunately, once we had the temple, Jews were always getting, unfortunately, caught up with the, the um, thinking of the day. Jews were pulled into idolatry, which is, you know, sin, you know, sin number one in Judaism to go away from God. And we end up losing our condition that we get exiled by the Babylonians. And we get exiled for 70 years. Now, I just want to point out, this is, uh, no, 850 years in the land of Israel is a long period of time. Before the Jewish people entered the land of Israel, no nation ever had complete control of the entire land. When we got there, there were 31 different little kingdoms occupied throughout the land. It's a very hard land to get complete control of. Part of the reason why Israel is so difficult is that it's nestled, if you just imagine for a moment, let's say this is the, uh, the Mediterranean, right? And here's Israel, but the marriage over here. The only way you can go from Africa to Europe or from Africa into Asia is to go through Israel. So Israel is the junction between these three continents. And as a result, more battles were fought in Israel in ancient times than in any other country. Because whoever controlled Israel controlled the flow of commerce between Asia, Africa, and Europe. So no nation ever successfully got control until we entered the land. We get there for 850 years. Now just to, to give you a, a sense of that, the Roman Empire was around for a grand total of 500 years. Just 500 years, that's it. The Roman Empire. Here we're in Israel for 850 years. We get exiled once, we went to Babylon for 70 years. Then we come out of that exile. And we have the, um, the second temple, which is 420 years that we have the second temple. This thousand year period, though, ends the first 40 years of the second temple era. All right, now, so I'm just going to put a line here for a moment just to be clear. 
So here's a thousand year pyramid, as you know. We have been around for 3,300 years since Sinai. So a thousand year period is one third of our history, national history. So what is so significant? Why did I say 1,000 years of a chunk of time? During this period of time, we had something which was remarkable, which is we had to get the prophecy. We had to get the prophecy. For a thousand years from Sinai, the Jewish people had the gift of prophecy where people could reach a level spiritually where they could communicate with God. And they became prophets. Now, there are three different reasons why someone would become a prophet. Would become a prophet. First of all, they had to be of great stature, great understanding, great wisdom. Reason number one is that maybe they, you know, they were just so great that God was going to reveal certain secrets to them or expand their consciousness. It was just between them and God, God was going to share things for their own education. Reason number two why someone would become a prophet is that there may be messages for that generation to know. Should we? Should they sign the Iron Man deal? What should the Jews do? Should they go against the generation? Should they not go against the generation? What do we do? Should we go to battle? Should we not go to battle? So some prophecies were specific for the generation. And then there were a third class of prophecies that were for all Jews for all generations. Right? It mean messages for the Jewish people for all time. During this thousand-year period, we had many prophets. Do you know how many prophets the Torah, the Talmud says we had in total in Jewish history? Over a million. There were over a million prophets. They actually had at schools a prophecy. You know, that if you're uh, that, you're like, oh, you know, you know Jewish mothers, they send all their, their boys off to prophecy so they can. I was thinking that, you know, the, the story about the uh, Jewish mother at the grocery checkout and the, um, Maybe the checkout says, oh, your boys are so cute. How old are they? And she says, well, the doctor's seven and the lawyer's nine. You know, it's like, that's Jewish mother. We had places we could send people to become prophets. We had over a million prophets throughout this period of time. What happened was, the first 40 years of the Second Temple era, the rabbis realized prophecy's going to come to an end. It's going to come to an end. So what do they do? So what they did was they took all the prophecies that were recorded that they felt were relevant for the Jews for all time. Uh, they're relevant for all time, and they canonized the books of the prophets, the writings. They canonized. So they took only the prophecies they felt were relevant to Jews up until the end of time, and they put it into the books of the prophets and the writings. And that's what's covered in the prophets and the writings, this thousand year period of history. Now, it's a very simple way to organize what was covered. There are three major changes. If you want to say how the Jewish people change during this time, three major things that uh, impacted us as a nation. You're like this. One, we fell in love with the land of Israel. We came out of the desert in Sinai and we come to the land of Israel there for 850 years. And we fall in love with Israel. And the whole story about how we conquered Israel, how we take it over, how we settle it, and how we hold on to it is told in the books of Joshua and Judges. Joshua and Judges, those two books of the Prophets of Rights covered that period of time. How we come to the land of Israel, conquer it, settle it, and hold on to it, that's what's covered there. The second thing that changed for the Jewish people when we came to the land of Israel is that for the first time we had a monarchy, we had a king. Now the Torah says, in fact, this week's Torah reading talks about the mitzvah to appoint a king, to have a king in our uh, society. And the point of a Jewish king is not to be just a political figure. But he's like a philosopher king. He's meant to be the wisest of all, and to once the nation is secured politically, 
purely and geographically, then the king is there to lift us up and give us a vision of who we are as people. So we have the story of the monarchy. Now the first monarch, the first king of the Jewish people was King Saul. King Saul. But unfortunately, he didn't last for too long. And we have eventually David emerging. That's called the books of Samuel 1 and Samuel 2. Samuel 1 and Samuel 2 are all about the rise of King David. And I just want to mention in our tradition, more is written about King David than any other biblical figure in our entire tradition. He was a great philosopher, he had been a great warrior, a great political leader, a wise scholar, and a poet. In fact, his book of poetry, the book of Psalms, forms most of our prayers today, come from King David's writings. In fact, Paul Johnson, who's a you know, British historian, says that King David was the first person to actually put down kind of soulful aspirations on paper. All his yearnings, everything he wanted out of life, that was a new style of writing. That's in the book of Psalms. Samuel was the prophet at that time who ushered in the monarchy, first of Saul and then of King, uh, King David. David had a very challenging life. Uh, he was pursued by King Saul. King Saul thought, uh, became jealous of him. And he tried to uh, kill David. There's a lot of rebellions against David. But God established with David that the monarchy will always be from his family. And in fact, in the future, the Messiah of the Jewish people is going to be a descendant of King David. That's a promise to David made by God. The word, by the way, Messiah, literally means anointed one. Because a king is anointed with oil, so in our understanding, eventually it will be a great leader of the Jewish people, will be a king. He's going to be a human, one touch, one of us, but it'll be a king. That's told in the books of Samuel 1 and Samuel 2. And then finally, one other major thing that happened during this thousand year of time, and that's the Temple of Jerusalem. The Temple of Jerusalem was told to us in the books of Kings 1 and Kings 2. Now, David was the one that actually wanted to build the temple. <clears throat> and he, um, he felt it was inappropriate that here he's sitting in the palace, and God's sort of sitting in, you know, dwelling in this temporary tabernacle kind of temple. He wanted to build a permanent temple. It was his vision of Jerusalem that it should become the political and spiritual capital of the Jewish people, and there should be a home built for God. His son Solomon is the one who's actually going to build the temple. So, uh, David was not allowed to because he was a warrior, and he had blood on his hands. And God says it's not appropriate that a place of peace, of coming together, should be built by someone who's, you know, had a cause of much death. So it's the son Solomon, Solomon in Hebrew, Shlomo, meaning Shalom, peace, the man of peace. And he's the one who actually leads the building. Kings 1 is all about the building of the temple and how it impacts our society as a people. And Kings 2 is everything that kind of went wrong that led eventually to the destruction of the temple. So these become the next books of our tradition. And these are known as the early prophets, Joshua, Judges, and so on. That's the first thing the rabbis did at this period of time. If we're going to lose the gift of prophecy, so let's take the prophecies that are written that are either giving us on one hand a historical picture of who we, what went right in our society and what went wrong. So we can understand that for the future. And, uh, and then there's more. Is this clear so far? How are we doing? Interesting? Fascinating? Captivating? <laughs> Great, so here we go. Just to give you a, a, there's 24 books all together in Tanakh. The Torah's got five. Then we have the prophets and the writings. Joshua, Judges, Samuel's Kings, these four, which I just mentioned, these are the history of the Jewish people. 
from what I said, from coming to the land to the disruption of the temple. And she just know, they were written by prophets. So they weren't written by historians. So the, the vantage point of a prophet is to spur the people to be excellent, morally, spiritually. So they're very critical of you know, this period of, of time. And they show us what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the other prophets here, for the most part, are prophecies to the future. Kind of prophecies of what's going to happen in the world. A lot of you may have heard of the end of days prophecies. What's going to happen right before Messiah happens? They're here in these prophets. So there's, this is the his prophecies which are more historical in nature, and then these prophecies which are more about what's going to happen to the world throughout history. And many of them aren't coming true. And then finally, we have the writings. The writings are more books that were written during this period of time, this thousand-year period of time, and they're in their own class. Psalms are written by King David, Proverbs are a bunch of, um, of wise riddles and parables written by King Solomon. Joe, you may have heard the person who suffered tremendous song of songs written by King Solomon. Ruth, a convert that we read her story always before the holiday of Shibboleth. Lamentations we just read, the holiday of Tishabah. It's about the destruction of uh, Jerusalem. Ecclesiastes, again written by Solomon. It's about um, the nature of life. And it's King Solomon's musing as the wisest person ever. Esther's read a poor time. Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah are all things happen during the, the destruction of the first temple. The Chronicles kind of tells you the whole story from the beginning to end. But the, the difference between these two, just as you should know, the prophets were written on a level of prophecy, where God's actually speaking to the prophet. The writings were written on what's called the Ruach HaKodesh. They're written with a level of divine inspiration. So it's not like God's communicating, but the person has a level of intellectual enlightenment that they're able to write these things. That's the next step in our tradition. Clear? Okay. Run along. I just want to point out one other fascinating thing. The other thing the rabbis did during this time is they started to put together formal prayers. Meaning, if you think about it, just kind of going back for a second. We go back. What did the rabbis do? They said the following. They said, look, we just came out of exile in Babylon. We're now starting to build the second temple. The Jews were living in non-Jewish society. So the ability to pray like a Jew was impacted because we were living in a non-Jewish culture. And we weren't speaking Hebrew anymore. We were speaking a dialect of Aramaic. So the rabbis said the following, just at this period of time. They said, you know, let's formalize prayer. Up until this point, there was a commandment to pray. There was an idea to pray every day. But you pray informally, in your own, in your own way. They said, let's formalize the prayer. And they wrote a prayer called the Amida, the silent prayer, which today is still recited three times a day. And they put together 18 blessings in order. And the people composed this prayer, the, the Amidah, the Shemana Esrei, they were the men of the great assemblies, great judges of Israel. Amongst them were prophets. And they said, hey, let's give every Jew, regardless of their background and their education, let's all give them the capacity to pray to God in the way that a great prophet of Israel, a great sage would pray, for having, having the right priorities, for example. You know, intellect or health. Which do you think you get put in order? Which should come first? Health or intellect? Health. Right? Most people would say health. But surprisingly, the first thing we ask for in our prayers, the first request is actually intellect. Understanding. Because 
way of understanding, then you can go unbelievably far and you can traverse many difficult situations. There are many people who are very healthy, but if they're you know, fools, then they can live their entire life you know, completely out of touch with reality. So they put together this order of prayer, and if you look at it, it's fascinating. You've gone, you've gone through the sound prayer, and it's in every prayer book. You'll know once you go through the individual requests, intellect, change, health, livelihood, we ask for three things. We ask, please return us back to the land of Israel, to our borders. Please eventually reestablish the monarchy of David with the Messiah. And eventually, please let us rebuild the temple. So every day when we pray, what we're actually doing is we're going back to this period of our history and pray for what went right, the glorious times when the Jewish people win our land and we are seen as a light to the entire nations. So that's the that's the sitter. And uh, and I just want to point something out here. It's diagrams. That this is the temple, a later the temple. When the temple is destroyed, prayer became sort of the thing you do instead of bringing offerings, you would pray. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one day we'll move to a crash course on the sitter of the prayer book, and I'll, I'll give you an understanding of the mechanics of what we're accomplishing. But in a nutshell, the way our prayers are organized in the sitter is just like when someone would enter the temple, they'd enter this courtyard area, then they would enter the place where the altar, the offerings would grow up, where the priests would work, then they would enter the inner sanctuary, and then there would be the inner sanctum, that only once a year the high priest would go into, that's known as the Holy of Holies. Just like there was like a stage, kind of gradual development, kind of closeness that you're getting as you go deeper, deeper into the temple area. Similarly, our prayers are organized in four parts, and therefore there's the initial part of our prayer section. Then we kind of there's the second stage. There's the saying of the Shema, and then when we say the Amidah, the actual silent prayer, when we do that, we're actually told in Jewish law that we should envision ourselves in the Holy Holies, like in the inner sanctum, talking to God. You know, just see yourself in the most intimate way. And so a lot of our whole psyche through the prayer, what we do is fashioned after that. Good. All right. Friends and men. Any questions? Okay. So let's do a little review. 1,000, 1,500, 1,000. There's 1,000 years from Adam to? 1,000 years from Noah to? 500 years later, we get the. And a thousand years after before we get the... Right, good. Excellent. And then, 500, 300. 500 years after the prophet, we get the... And 300 years later, we get the... Oh, excellent. So now we're going to focus on this stage. This is the next step to our tradition. All right, we're going to this. The second temple era, which I said was 420 years, very different than the first temple era. Many people don't know, you know what was really different. Major change. First of all, the temple had been destroyed, so the first one they built as the second temple was diminished. It wasn't spiritually powerful. There were miracles that happened every day in the first temple. It didn't happen in the second temple. The ten tribes had been exiled during the first temple period. There was no more monarchy, no more kings. That was finished, unfortunately. And we were ruled by other nations. The Persians, the Greeks, the Romans ruled over us for most of this period. For most of this period. So it was a very challenging time. And also, for the first time, Jews are now on the outside of Israel. Because we've been put down to Babylon, so even when we, we, we had the chance to go back to Israel and rebuild ourselves, not everybody came. Many people stayed in Babylon and became a very strong community in the diaspora. 
And finally, there are breakaway groups of Jews in the second temple era. It's going to say there are Essenes, uh, Sadducees, and Christians. They're there. Essenes. These are breakaway groups of Jews that no longer abide by our sense of what, we, what we're about. The Essenes, S-S-E-N-E-S, this is a group that were sort of like uh, aesthetics. They went to, into the desert, they lived very minimalist lives. Then there's the Sadducees. The Sadducees were Jews that no longer believed in the old tradition. This entire old tradition, how we keep our tradition, all the laws, they said anything that's not written down in the five books of Moses, we don't abide by. So that's the Sadducees. And then there was the Christians. The Christians were during the Second, uh, second Temple era. They were Jews initially. That believe that J.C. was the long way to Messiah, the Jewish people, and eventually, you know, there once a spawn Christian, that Christianity and converted uh, the pagans, and was eventually adopted by Rome. But this breakaway groups of Jews, so it's a very troubled time during this next 500 years, right? 420 years, and then the temple is destroyed in the year 70. So this is what happens: destroyed in the year 70, and then. What happens is, second temple is destroyed in the year 70. And then the rabbis compiled the Mishnah. Now it's like this. Remember I said the oral tradition, there's a lot of benefits for our tradition to be oral. Dynamic, you make sure you understand it, you have to master it, you pass it on. It's the culture of the Jewish people to be learning, always learning, and therefore our, our, what we spoke about most of the time was concepts of law and learning and philosophy. But then, with the Roman exile, they destroyed the second temple in the year 70, we're starting to get scattered. Many Jews were taken as captives into Rome. So the rabbis realized there's no way we're going to be able to hold on on to our entire tradition if we don't do something. So they went against Jewish law, because they felt it was a necessity, and they compiled the Mishnah. They gathered 3,000 leading sages, many came up from Babylon, participate in this, and they took the entire Magnus of Jewish law that was oral, and all the mastered by memory, and they put it down into small little paragraphs of law, case law for the most part. And they did it in a way that the cases were so cryptic that you would need a teacher to explain it to you. So they would maintain the oral integrity. You would still have to learn it from someone. You'd have the dynamic of really make sure that you understand it, but at least you have like cue cards. So for example, here's a very famous Mishnah. Two men find a talus. This guy's holding on to a talus, a prayer shawl. This guy says, I found it. This guy says, I found it. This guy says, it's all mine. This guy says, it's all mine. What do you do? They both have to square the knowledge, and one half of it is theirs, and they split. That is the case of Jewish law. That's a Mishnah. It's a case. Now, what does it mean two guys say they found it? They, they found it. It's, does it mean that they saw it? And they said, oh, that's, my, that's mine. Or they picked it up. You have to take possession of it. They're holding on to it. Are they holding on to the ends? What happens if one guy's holding on to three quarters? And the other guy's only holding on to a quarter. Do they still split it? Or maybe the three quarters means he's got the majority possession? How does that work? When it says they split it, they split it with scissors, they split it, you know, uh, they split it with uh, monetarily. All that was then discussed. But the mission that helped us at least remember the base law case, and then we could discuss it. That's the mission. Is that clear? So there's, there's all together about 5,000, uh, 225 Mishnahis, I believe, that were written down and codified and covered the gamut of Jerusalem. 
Another time I'll go to an older home. The tall women they have 40 eyes. But uh, that's the Mishnah. Now what happened was, that's when there are tradition, our old tradition was put into like a code form. But right before, as I said, the collapse of Rome, the Talmud was written. Now the Talmud is more or less the decoding of the Mishnah. What happened was, the rabbi said, you know what? These paragraphs of law that we wrote down in the Mishnah, they're so dense, there's so much knowledge encrypted into there that has to be worked out, that even that is getting difficult to remember everything that we intended for them to recall from studying that Mishnah. So what the rabbis did was they decoded the Mishnah. They would, you would, the Talmud is literally rabbis analyzing the Mishnah for us, and those analyses were written down, and that's the Talmud. So the way the Talmud works is you have the Mishnah, in the opening chapter, in that case of two guys finding the Talmud, and then the Talmud is basically rabbis, you know, the record of their discussion, analyzing that for us, so we can see everything that was intended for us to recall from that. So it was another next step to help the Jewish people ensure that we could remember everything that we had to know as part of our tradition. Yes, remember your name? Nicole. Nicole, yes. So the reason that they can count all this though is that because they're, they knew they were going to get more profits, before that they all remembered it just fine. That's right, no, they, they, they knew it now because, the, um, because they're going into exile. Roman exile itself was going to be very, very difficult. Uh, our tradition knew already before they had problems that it's going to be a long exile. So they felt the Jewish people were just not going to be able to maintain, I mean, just the amount of knowledge that was mastered for 1,500 years. This was 1,500 years after the Torah was given, the mission came to For 1,500 years, everything was memorized. Now, if you look at a Talmud, you'll see like, you know, 20 volumes of law. It's like, Unbelievable how much knowledge is there, but that's what every Jew is walking around with in their head for thousands of years, but they couldn't do that anymore. So we, we were giants of learning, but they just saw that it, was, it wasn't going to be manageable. I want to point out, though, as we kind of conclude here, that um, a beautiful thing about the Talmud, there's a historian, Cecil Roth, the British historian, he says the following. He says, the Talmud is not just the code of the Jewish religion, the code of Jewish law. He says the Talmud essentially, what the rabbis did, was they wrote the, the, the code of Jewish civilization. Because the Talmud not just goes through the analysis of laws and ideas and concepts, but it actually also gives over what Jewish life was like. When you go through the Talmud, there's whole areas that talk about what the marketplace is like, what the conversation between husbands and wives, the study of all conversations, the marketplace. You've got a sense of Jewish culture. So as a result, right when the, the this we're about to go into this long thousand year middle you know, exile for a thousand years and then beyond that even through the enlightenment what he says is what the rabbis really did was they created a home you know a home for the Jews away from home so no matter where we were in our, in our history no matter how dark things got we would open up the page of home and we were back in the glory days and we're analyzing and holding on to what our tradition is all about and what we're about as a people so therefore, that's why, you know, the only ancient religion that was ever revitalized was Hebrew. But you don't have ancient dialects become, you know, modern languages except Hebrew. But it can happen because, because our tradition was being maintained and the culture of Judaism, the culture of what we're about as people is all maintained in Talmud. That's why it now is the bulk of Jewish learning and that's the Jewish character is fashioned through 
Um, because that's what really kind of brings out again the need for analysis, the way for the search for truth, understanding what God wants from us down to the, the, the nitty-gritty detail and how eventually we get back to the land of Israel we, we constitute ourselves in, in our land in a way that we can be aligned to nations with the precepts understood by us all. So that was like the final major thing that was established before we go into the, the Middle Ages. So that is the Talmud. So the Talmud is just the Mishnah being decoded. The Mishnah is the oral law in code form. And for over 1,500 years, we had it all uh, held in our head. And therefore, that's the ABCs of how our tradition works. And that's why learning is so much about what it means to this. Next year in Jerusalem. You know, I always like to say that one thing I should mention is that the most, the most uh, important reason why I study learning is so key is because we said in the beginning, you know, God isn't it. He made it self-evident. It's a remarkable thing. I mean, here you have this book, The Billion Dollar Challenge. It's the one book that is still the most widely read book in the world. Has influenced the Christian world. You know, the Christian world has spawned from the, the, the Bible. The Muslim world also from the Bible. I mean, and we've been around for, you know, from Abraham's time, around for 3,800 years. From Sinai, 3,300 years. You know, before we were around for 1,300 years, before the Christians ever came to be. We were around for almost 1,900 years before the Muslims emerged on earth. If you go into a, uh, uh, into a hotel, you see the Gideon Bible, you know, the uh, Bible stuff. If you look in there, you'll be amazed. Three quarters of pages, let's say it's 1,200 pages, I'm just making it up 1,200 pages, 900 of them is our Torah, Prophets, and Writings. Right? Well, the last 300 pages was what they came up with. But so much of the world today, and what's happening in the world today, is all, you know, really influence and outgrowth. No one can really understand how the world has developed ethically, legally, spiritually, philosophically, without understanding the Torah, because it's really spawned everything. And that's where our tradition, that's why we embrace it, because the most important thing is if God revealed himself in it, the closest way to get to him, sort of to get into the mind of God and to connect him deeply, is to understand what he thinks, what he wants us to do, to grow and to feel his love through the word. So that's the, the ABCs of tradition. We covered a lot. And, uh, and next week, we join together again, please God. Same bad time, same bad channel. Uh, we're going to go through the, the Torah more in depth and we'll understand kind of the, the, the richer themes of how it's organized, but more, more deeply what it's getting over in the picture. Any questions? How was it? Any questions, really? Alright, so there uh, we go. We did a lot. That was a lot. I'm very impressed with your, you know, your